Welcome to the One Away Show, presented by BW Missions. I am Brian Wish, and I am your host, and thanks so much for being here. On this show, I sit down with compelling entrepreneurs, authors, and rising leaders to talk through their most transformative relationships, experiences, and epiphanies. Curated with entrepreneurial leaders in mind, we'll dig into these finite moments in people's lives and understand how they helped set their path forward. Rick Jones is captain and chief creative officer of Fishbait Solutions, a lifestyle marketing sponsorship and event marketing consultancy and properties representation agency with an emphasis on college sports, country music, outdoor sports, food festivals, and American heritage clients. He founded the predecessor agency Fishbait Marketing in 2003. He's also managing partner of Engagement, a firm that helps teams create and implement better fan engagement processes and recently launched Fishbait Biz.com, an online resource to help small business owners become more successful and profitable. Rick is a leading expert on marketing, corporate sponsorship, events, sales techniques, team building, small business consulting, tourism, and travel. Over the course of his pioneering career, Rick has worked with many of the world's leading corporations, such as MasterCard and UPS, on the development and implementation of sports and entertainment programs. These include World Cup soccer and the Olympic Games and the NCAA basketball tournament, among countless others. Clients Rick is currently working with include Warner Company, Dollar General, Capital One, JTV, CMA, BMI, Opry Entertainment, the Mascot Hall of Fame, and the Country Music Hall of Fame, among many others. Rick published his first book, Analog Advice in the Digital World, a Baby Boomer's Words of Wisdom for the Millennial Generation in 2017, and released his second book, The Business of Tithe, in 2019. Rick, welcome to the One Away Show. Brian, thanks for having me today. Yeah, it's great to have you here and also build the relationship we have built over the last six, seven years, eight years. I have so many mess lessons from you just stored away in my head. So I'm, I'm so excited to be here with you. Rick, What what's the one-away moment that you want to share with us today? You know, Brian, from the time I was a little boy, I, I always wanted to be a coach. You know, that was something that I had just always wanted to do. And I was fortunate. I got, when it was time to student teach at Georgia Southern, I got sent to a private school on St. Simons Island and my supervising teacher quit. And I got hired as the athletic director and uh, basketball coach. And then I became uh, an assistant coach at the University of the South at Swanee, Tennessee in my early 20s. And then Fortunately, became the head coach when our head coach left for a job at South Carolina Spartanburg. And then I left Swanee and I went to graduate school at Georgia State. And I had every intention of staying in coaching. And right before Charlotte and I got married, um, I had been hired as the number one assistant at Wake Forest. And I was going to continue to be a basketball coach. And when I was on my honeymoon, the coach at Wake Forest retired. I didn't have a job. And so now I have a fork in the road. And fortunately, I had done an internship at Georgia Tech as part of my graduate school program. And um, Norman Airy, who was um, an associate AD over there, and Dr. Homer Rice, who was the AD, said, hey, come be our marketing director for a year, Rick, and we'll get you a coaching job next year. And I never went back. That was my big time fork in the road which has led me to a pretty incredible career in the sports and entertainment marketing business. 
but it all came about because uh, Carl Tacey at Wake Forest decided he didn't want to coach anymore. <laughs> wow. Uh, I can only imagine on your honeymoon uh, when you're maybe trying to put your life together in certain ways, kind of having this personal chaos of, oh, what am I going to do now? That must have been uh, terrifying. It was a little bit terrifying. You know, I've always been a cowboy. I mean, when I was a little boy, my heroes were cowboys. I always had money. I always had a job. Uh, I was always such an entrepreneur. Um, As a little boy, at age 11, I climbed up in a tree and picked mistletoe out of the tree and brought it down and bungled it up and sold it. And for the next 11 years, through my senior year in college, I sold mistletoe every year at Christmas. The last year, my senior year in college, I made over $5,000 selling mistletoe. That's a lot of mistletoe. (laughs) Um, I had a paper route. Um, I, I, you know, I just always had money because I always had a job. I always was an entrepreneur. And so even in that pivot, when I didn't have a coaching job, I I felt like I would be okay. Um, You know, I drive my wife crazy. You know, we've been married now 36 years and I'll say money's like Doritos. I'll just make more. That makes her crazy. Uh, But I've always kind of believed that. So I think you have to have great faith in yourself and that things will happen. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very spiritual. I believe God has a plan for everybody. And when a door closes, usually a window opens. Um, Garth Brooks had a great, a great song years ago called thank God for unanswered prayers. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, here's the truth. I, I, I love to coach, but I wasn't a great coach. Um, and part of it was I tended to treat everybody the same. And, you know, a coach is really a psychologist. You have to treat everybody a little bit differently. Um, I, you, you'll appreciate this. I gave a speech a few years ago at the Duke uh, Fuqua Business School, <laughs> and one of the Executive, one of the uh, uh, master's uh, students um, said to me, how do, you, how do you go from being a college basketball coach to being a successful sports marketing executive? And I laughingly said, it's really a lot easier than you think. You just don't win any games. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so there was some truth to that, but I really found my passion when I went to Georgia Tech as the marketing director and 1985, A, there was an amazing staff there. Dr. Rice is a legendary person in college athletics. He'd been a coach, a high school coach, a college coach, and even coached the Cincinnati Bengals in the National Football League. He'd been an AD at at North Carolina before. I, I just learned so much from that guy. You know, just I was a sponge around him about how to run a program, how to organize all that. We also had amazing coaches at the time. You know, we didn't beat your at tech, we didn't beat your alma mater very much. Um, but but we we did back to back when I was there in, in, in 85 and 86. We had a, a transfer from Georgia named John Dewberry, who was a quarterback and 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 beat the dogs twice. Bill Curry was the football coach there. Bobby Crimmins was the basketball coach, uh, Jim Morris, the legendary baseball coach later at Miami was the baseball coach, uh, Puggy Blackman, 
who later coached uh, national championships at South Carolina in golf, just had an amazing staff. And when you're when you put yourself as a young person in an environment with so many smart, talented people, you just you just get better. You learn a lot. And so, and I and Dr. Rice let me do stuff. We we had had a long time radio contract with WGST in Atlanta and, and Homer got more money from WCNN. And then he turned to me and said, make sure they can pay their contract, <laughs> make sure that they, they can stay in business, <laughs> help them sell advertising. Um, we, we just got to do so many unique things at tech. That was really a great, a great starting position for me in the marketing world. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like uh, those resilience skills that you build as a youngster, when you realize you weren't going to be coaching at Wake Forest, you were able to, be scrappy and come into an environment like Georgia Tech that kind of gave you a chance to, to see a different path and make the most of it. Sports marketing back in the mid-1980s to today has probably drastically changed. And you've seen it from the very beginnings to today. What were the things that you were doing back then where you say it was being a sponge? I mean, where where were your curiosities and passions you know, that you really latched onto in those early days when you're really getting a taste for the industry? I think early on, and it resonates even today, I focused on the idea that the business side of sport depends on fans. You know, at the end of the day, fans pay for everything. Let's take, uh, you know, the University of Georgia. Um, there are no sponsors if there are no fans. There are no television rights if there are no fans. There are no ticket sales if there are no fans. There's no licensed product if there are no fans. And so early on, I really came, kind of became a fanthropologist, an anthropologist that studied fans and really looked at subsetting fans. Mm -hmm. um, one of the first things I did at Georgia Tech was I sold season football tickets to college students at Atlanta universities that didn't have college football. Emory. Agnes Scott, at that time, Georgia State, Kennesaw. These were all schools that if you wanted a, a, a college football experience in Atlanta, you were going to need to come watch a Georgia Tech game. Hmm. So I really understood that there was a desire by many students that had gone to schools that didn't have football that still wanted to enjoy football. Hmm. Uh, and so that was the first idea of, of segmenting audiences in a really unique way. And I've really tried to do that the rest of my career is really pay attention to the demographic psychographics around fans. Um, I had a boss um, several years later named Chuck Jarvie. Jarvie's an interesting character. He's Roger Staubach's best friend. He was an All-American at Cornell in lacrosse. He was the former CEO of Dr. Pepper, of Fidelity Investments, of Shinley just a brilliant man. And he defined what we now call a tribe, a fan base, what he called an affinity group. And he defined it this way. An affinity group is a group that will suspend rational behavior in pursuit of their passion. <laughs> and, that, that's, and that's a college football fan. That's a country music fan. That's a fan of hunting and fishing. Suspend rational behavior because you want to pursue that piece of joy. Mm. Our, our current agency 
we talk about what we do is uniting brands with fans and uniting fans with brands. Mm. And we use the word unite versus connect because we're in such a, a weird environment right now, a divisive country, a segmented country that we're trying to unite people, you know, and if you go to a Georgia football game and you, you sit by somebody Heck, you don't know if they're a Democrat or Republican. You don't know if they're straight or gay. You don't know their family situation. You don't know their background. Mm-hmm. You just know go dogs. Right. And, and and that is a unifier. Right. Um, and events can really, I think, unify people in ways that, that other things can't. No doubt. No doubt. I mean, I think sports and events, as you, you know, if you're discussing can create that connective fabric, uh, that glue between people and that shared experience over something they care about. Uh, and, and Rick, something that, you know, I've always loved our conversations as we tend to get on the deeper side. Um, but I, I'm curious for you from, a, you know, talking about uniting and, and kind of having, um, you know, a lens of what makes fans tick. It seems like you've studied in the, you know, just, as almost like an anthropologist in a way, what brings and what mobilizes people around specific events um, and what makes them show up to be a part of an event. So I'm curious from your perspective and, and feel free to share an example with something you've done, but you know, what's it take in your opinion to mobilize or activate someone with a passion to show up for something? Uh, and how have you been able to maybe do that time in and time out throughout your career? Well, let's go back to this concept of uniting. You, you know, fans are for something and not against something. Okay. If you look at our political world right now, people will tell you all the things they're against and not what are you for and what do you stand for? A fan really is a fan of something, of a team, of an organization, of a sport, of an art or an artist or anything like that. And so I think it starts with understanding that you're you're taking advantage of the fact that the fan is the invited guest. You're not going to disrupt them like a television commercial would or a, you know, a, 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 a you know, a, a, a you know, some kind of a robo call or something like that that disrupts your day. They're there because they want to be there. So you're re- you're receiving fans in a real positive light. That's number one. Number two, I tell brands that the only way, the only reason you get involved with a property like the University of Georgia as a as a sponsor is for the fans. It's for the children. Uh, and in order to do that, I think you have to bring value to the fans. It's not enough just to put your logo someplace. Who cares? That's just that, that doesn't mean anything. What are you going to do that enhances the experience that the fan has, mm. you know, with it? You know, one of the things we're working on with some of our collegiate clients right now is stealing a page out of Walt Disney. Disney does a great thing. The first time you take your child to Disney World, they make a big deal about it. They give that little girl, boy or little girl a button that says my first trip to Disney. And so they wear that button proudly and every character in the theme park makes a point to stop and and talk to that child and welcome them to the Magic Kingdom for the first time in their life. 
Well, we should be doing that in college football. The first time you bring your little boy, little girl to a, to Sanford Stadium, we should make it an experience for them. We should bring them down on the field and let them pet Ugga. We should let them stand at midfield and have their uh, picture up on the jumbotron and welcome them. Because we've seen that if you have an experience like that under the age of five, it overlays in your brain waves this connective tissue that even if you choose to go to another school later on, you'll still have a love for your first love. And so, you know, we should do that. We should have a big button that says my first Georgia game. And so everybody is, you know, hugging and loving on that little boy or girl because they know how great the experience is going to be for them for the rest of their lives. So I'm a big believer in, in what I call providing value and creating what we refer to as connective tissue mm. back to the particular uh, activity. I, I have to say one, I appreciate your uh, Georgia references here. You know, I'm sure you're doing this for me. Go dogs. Um, but no, I, I think what you're saying though, Rick is, is phenomenal, right? How do you create such a meaningful and connective experience for the fans? Because the business of sports want to exist without the fans and so when you have that lens of how do you capture the emotion of the people at their events and those experiences, that can go a long way in, in creating unifying bonds between people and creating these formative moments that create that attachment um, to teams in, in, in a very loyal way. Very, very cool. Rick, let's talk about uh, Leapfrog from the Georgia Tech experience. So Tell us a bit about your childhood, and I know there's a lot more there. Shared about the honeymoon experience with, you know, the love of your life, and you get back, go to Georgia Tech, and you're a sponge, and you can really absorb, and you start to see and understand things in a different way. How how do you things progress from there? How do you things start to build momentum? Uh, how does your journey change and evolve from Tech? Well, another one of those, you know, unique moments. Part of my compensation at Tech was I got paid a commission. And I had been a teacher my whole life and, uh, and a coach. And, you know, you, you fill out your income tax and write down what you made. And Uncle Sam sends you $300 back. Well, it came time to do my taxes after making all this money on commissions. And lo and behold, I owed $8,000 in federal income tax. And I was making $17,000 a year. So... Mm -hmm. I now owe the government over half of what I'm making a year in my regular salary. Obviously I had kept that money or spent that money or done something with that money. And so I was fortunate enough that my boss at Georgia tech, Norman Airy had left to go work at a PR firm called Conan Wolf in Atlanta for the legendary Bob Cone. And uh, Norman wanted me to come over and, and help him. And I said, Norman, um, I need a signing bonus. He said, what? This is a PR firm. They don't pay signing bonuses. I said, if they want to get me, they have to. And and lo and behold, Conan Wolf paid me a salary. I was making $17,000 a year. They paid me a salary of $32,000 a year and paid me an $8,000 signing bonus to come to work over there. Um, I was able to pay my taxes, stay out of jail. And that gave me my first experience in agency world. And again, I had the privilege of working with some incredible people. Bob Cohn, 
legendary PR executive, probably the most creative person I've ever known. Let's go back to the what I told you. First of all, Homer Rice at Georgia Tech, organizational structure, discipline, um, method, process. He was processed before Nick Saban was processed. I mean, this guy was processed. Bob Cohn, on the other hand, creativity, zaniness, wildness. And I just learned so much from a creative standpoint from him. There was a guy named Bob Hope, who had been at the Braves before and later had his own agency, Hope Beckham, in Atlanta, still does. Great talent. Jim Overstreet, great talent. Clisby Clark, who was running with Ken Erickson, who I got to interface with. I mean, just giants of marketing that I just got to sit around in rooms. And and listen, I'm going to tell you a really funny story about this. So we're, we're doing a project. I'm not doing it, but the agency is doing a project for the governor of the state of Georgia, Joe Frank Harris. And it's called Quality Basic Education. And Bob Cohn says to me, because he just like hanging out with me, he called me coach all the time. He said, coach, coach, ride down to the Capitol with me today. And so on the way down to the Capitol, we had to swing by this artist house and pick up this foam board that had QBE, like a built, like a kid's block with the QBE on it. And it was colored green and blue. Okay. And we, we, and all the way we're down there, Cone just wants to talk sports and, and, you know, women and all kinds of stuff. Nothing about this project. He just wanted me to ride down there with him. So we're walking down the hall to go meet with the governor and he turns to me and he goes, Rick, I'll do all the talking. Well, no joke. I don't know anything about this project. You're going to do all the talking. So we get in there and it's um, Barbara. I'm trying to think of her last name. She was the direct uh, head of education in Georgia. God, what was her name? And Joe Frank Harris, who was the governor. We're sitting in the governor's office and Bob does the whole thing. And then the governor says, why did you pick these colors? And Cone turns to me and goes, tell him, Rick. And I go, well, governor, you know, green is for growth and education and blue is for the vastness of the sky and how we're going to grow education. And we didn't want to use Georgia Tech or Georgia colors. And he goes, that, that makes a lot of sense. Well, we're walking back down the hall after the meeting and Cone packs me on the back and goes, way to go, coach. You made that shit up. <laughs> And he was right. I did. But what I called my time there an idea incubator. You know, some organizations ask you why. Conan Wolf asks you why not. Mm. Different mindset. And then we, they had sold the agency to Burson Marsteller and they were doing a little bit more traditional PR. And they were going to work on a project that I didn't feel comfortable with that was a, a home for children where the uh, head of the home had been accused of molesting the children. And we were going to try to be their PR agency. And I, I made the mistake of asking the head of the agency if he did it. He said, it doesn't matter. It's not our job whether he did it or not. I said, if he did it, I'm not working on it. And so I kind of knew the writing was on the wall for me. And I was ready to be an entrepreneur. And I had a chance to leave. And... Uh, Got an account uh, with R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company, running a golf tournament in uh, 
San Antonio, Texas. And um, that led me to creating my first agency. Wow. And from that point on, I've been a serial, uh, you know, agency creator. I've, I've built two others and sold both of them. And, um, and now I'm on, I'm on my third and last uh, agency. So it's, uh, it's been, again, you talk about those life-changing moments, those forks in the road. I've had a bunch of those. And I've been really blessed that it turned out to be the, you know, the right road I took. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, like you, I love what you said about the idea incubator and kind of using your time there to really test things, throw spaghetti at the wall, so to speak, and kind of see what stick, but then also realize that deeper knowing that, Hey, there's something more out there for me and I need to go create and, and build that. Well, I, again, go back to what I said as a child. I, I, I just like being an entrepreneur. I like controlling my destiny. Hey, as a basketball coach, I was a head coach seven years and an assistant two years. I didn't much like those two years. I like being the head coach. Um, and in agency, coaching is a great training for an agency because the first thing you realize as a coach is you can't play. You better get players. And you better give players – the resources they need to be successful. Same thing in running an agency. You yeah. hire a, smart, talented people and you let them play. That's a great analogy. To, to, to just speak to what you just said, I'm going through this weird shift where I'm so used to just playing. And I'm like, I'm really learning like how to put in the right players to get the team to where it needs to go uh, based on the championship we, you know, we see for ourselves. So right. it's, it's a completely yeah. different shift. Uh, but it, I love the analogy. I think it makes a lot of sense and probably something you really enjoyed, you know, giving people a platform to develop upon as you well, would. You know, you know, the little book I wrote, Analog Advice in a Digital World, one of the chapters says, remember, even the Lone Ranger didn't travel alone. Mm. Um, I mean, he was the ultimate cowboy, but he had Tonto. And everybody, you know, life's a team sport. Business is a team sport, um, and and you you got to have teammates. And my favorite dish of and I like to cook. My favorite dish is gumbo, and I've probably eaten hundreds of bowls of gumbo, and none of them have ever been the same. You know, gumbo is a consolidation of a whole lot of ingredients, a whole lot of spices, a whole lot of different things. That's what I like about teams. Hmm. It's gumbo. You know, and 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 agencies are, are are gumbo ingredients in gumbo, and you hope you make something collectively that really resonates in the marketplace in a way that benefits everybody. But it's about the individual ingredients that you put in there, and when you put them in, and how much of them you put in, and those types of things. And so it's it's very similar in building organizations. Absolutely, yeah, love love the analogy. I kind of agree more. It makes me reflect on what we're doing. Um, Rick, um, talk, talk to me a little bit about the the agencies that you started. I know you're still on, on fish bait marketing today, but uh, I'm sure you learned a tremendous amount in your first two agencies to get to where you are. So I'm curious as in the, the um, dots that you plotted, so to speak, and, and how that led you to what you've been building since. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I'll go back to the coaching piece. Um, you know, we won a lot of games looking back when we did all the things wrong. 
but my kids didn't know they were the wrong things to do. So they just found a way to win. I think that's the same truth in agencies early on. We didn't kind of know what we were doing, but we were so committed to doing that we had some success. The first agency I started really came out of um, this relationship with RJ Reynolds Tobacco Company and their golf division. They they had um, a, a product called Vantage Cigarettes over on what was then called the Senior PGA Tour, but they bought Nabisco brands. And, and so they became RJR Nabisco, a legendary CEO named Ross Johnson. They wrote a book called Barbarians at the Gate about, about his tenure at RJR Nabisco. And so the first agency was taught me two things. One, we were deep in the golf business because Nabisco was deep in the golf business and we made a lot of money in the golf business. But secondly, we learned the grocery business. We learned the packaged goods business because Nabisco brands had a variety of products. They had a, you know, cook, you think about Nabisco, you think about cookies and crackers, you know, uh, Nello wafers and premium saltines and Chips Ahoy and lots of crackers, but they also had a food division that had Fleischmann's margarine and planter's nuts and, you know, a variety of different products and stuff. And so we learned, you know, how to take those products to the grocery trade. And then once we learned that, we had a series of successes where we sold title sponsorships to golf tournaments to grocery chains themselves. And so we did the HEB Texas Open and the Raley's Sacramento Open and the Ralph's LA Open and the Bruno's Memorial Classic in Birmingham, all with the same model. Grocery chains welcoming the tour once a year, the tour stop benefits charity, giving money back to charity. But more importantly, it was never the grocer's money. They went to their vendors and got all the money from their vendors. Mm. Um, I, I, I talk about Bruno's in Birmingham. The Bruno family was an old Italian Catholic family. And in that era, they had had a, a PGA championship. We had a PGA championship here a few weeks ago and here uh, in, in Charleston that Phil Mickelson fortunately won at, at age 50, won one for the old guys. Um, but in that era, they had done a PGA championship at Shoal Creek in Birmingham that was a course that did not accept black members. Mm. And, and Birmingham really got a black eye. And, and the Bruno family said, we're no longer in the Jim Crow era. We've changed in Alabama, and we want to do something positive for the community. And so they sponsored this golf tournament. We had a black golfer, Jim Dent, and a white golfer, Orville Moody, be our spokespersons. Uh, Angelo Bruno the chairman who tragically died in a plane crash with nine other members of the Bruno family a week after we announced the golf tournament before he died, told me, Rick, remember I'm in the grocery business 365 days a year. I'm in the golf business seven days a year. And so we had Coke on the front nine and Pepsi on the back nine. And the next year we flipped it and, and, and the drinks were 50 cents and water was free on the golf course and hamburgers were a dollar because they weren't trying to make money on the concession business. They'll make money in the grocery chain. Mm. So I learned a lot about that. So we also picked up Frito-Lay's business. Uh, we picked up a number of uh, other packaged goods uh, during that era in that first agency. Um, and then we pivoted and we got involved with MasterCard. We won the MasterCard World Cup business 
And it's a great story again there. I'm giving a speech in Barcelona, Spain. And the woman before me was a woman named Mava Heffler. And she was giving a speech on behalf of her client, Johnson & Johnson, that had created the first battered women's shelter. Uh, and it was called Shelter Aid. And she did her speech and she walked off and she turned to a friend of mine from the IEG, from the International Events Group, a guy named Jim Andrews, and said, talking about me, is this next guy any good? And Jim said, yeah, you ought to stick around and listen to Rick Jones. And after I gave my speech, she greeted me when I came off the stage and said, can we go have a cup of coffee? Mm. And we went around the corner and had a cup of coffee. And she said, I'm starting as the head of sponsorship at MasterCard on Monday. We have this thing called World Cup Soccer. I know nothing about it. Can you help me? And that led us to competing for the business and winning the business that really then set us up to be more of a global agency. And that led then to us winning the first Olympic piece of business we won, which was the Sarah Lee business. And then that led Advantage International, which is now Octagon, to acquire us. So that first agency I end up selling uh, to Advantage. And then another fork in the road. After a year, the Cowboys board. And I go to my boss and I go, I'm really bored. And he goes, will you go run Europe? And I remember calling my wife and she said, you told him yes before you asked me, didn't you? I was like, oh, honey, I'd have never done that. But you'll love London. (laughs) (laughs) And so... That was the next adventure for us. We were able to go to London and run Advantage's Europe, Middle East, and Africa operation for three years. And then we sold Advantage to interpublic group of companies to form Octagon. And literally the day we sold it, I got called by a headhunter. And he had called me three weeks earlier looking for names. And I had been involved in a big pitch to do the representation work for the Cricket World Cup in the UK. And I had not called him back. And he called me back the day we sold the company, literally that day. And he called me back and said, hey, I said, I'm so sorry I hadn't returned your phone calls. He says, Rick, don't worry about it. I called you for some names and the three weeks you didn't call me back, everybody gave me your name. And he said, are you And I said, honestly, 24 hours ago, no. But we just saw the company tonight, yes. And that then led me to the next agency because I left London and I came and I started an agency called Strategic. It was at that time called uh, CMA, Collegiate Marketing Associates. It became uh, the Gym Group. Um, And we ended up selling that company to a British publicly traded company um, in the UK. Uh, and that company was really all about, uh, again, um, big events like Olympic Games and a lot of collegiate marketing uh, in that in that era. And then after we sold it to the British Public Trading Company, then I later formed Fishbait. And Fishbait really was about college sports, 100% college sports, which is a real passion of mine. And that has led us now to Fishbait Solutions, which involves still involves college sports, country music, outdoor sports, food festivals, tourism, and American heritage, some of the great 
historical places in America. Yeah. And we, we represent those. So the key ingredient to these, I'm a big believer in what I call riches and niches. And every one of my agencies had a unique niche. When we sold to Advantage, we had one World Cup sponsor and one Olympic sponsor. We then went about winning another 14 Olympic sponsors with Advantage. We had 16 Olympic sponsors in Atlanta for the 96 Olympic Games. And so it was about those big global events and big global sponsors. And then Fishbait was about college sports, largely about coaches. We, we built it on the back of college football and college basketball coaches and their trade associations and using coaches as brand ambassadors at a time that everybody watched coaches on TV. Um, you know who the football coaches are. You know who the basketball coaches are. And we were able to build a business based on that niche. Uh, our niche today is about this unique fan base, what, what we call the flyover state fan, the fan that, you know, says roll tide and goes to NASCAR races and eats barbecue and listens to Blake Shelton and, uh, uh, you know, is very patriotic and goes to battlefields. I mean, it's the same kind of consumer and we're trying to appeal to that consumer based on their lifestyles and the things that are important to them from a leisure standpoint. What, you know, what are the tribes they belong to and how do we exploit those? It's so neat to see the um, connective tissue between I think everything you've done. And I think creating these platforms that appeal to specific groups and then bringing in sponsors and, and audiences to kind of connect kind of the parties to the events. Um, from 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 your perspective, I guess it's more of a business question, and uh, you know we can have a couple more life questions before we send you on your way. What what has been, you know, you, you've been able to show up. It seems like the right places at the right times, but that's that's more than luck. You know, yeah, it's hard work. It's doing a good job over and over. But for you, Rick, you know, what's allowed you to? continuously find these niches. And then once you kind of identify a niche, how do you understand the ingredients to put around it to make it a, a very rich and kind of thriving environment as you've been able to do, you know, three times, three times over? Well, I, I think number one, you got to be a doer. You know, Nike's right. They don't say just try it or, or, or just fake it. You know, they say, just do it. I'm reading a really interesting book right now by John Maxwell. John Maxwell is probably the leading um, leadership guru in America. This this is called Change Your World. And and I, I read a poem in here from a guy named Brad Montague that I, that I thought really kind of summed up my foundation. It said, dare to dream, but also do. For dreamers are many, but doers are few. <laughs> and so, you know, a lot of stuff just is showing up. I mean, just, just do it. Just take that first step. Secondly, marketers will lie to themselves and say they create avalanches. They don't. Society creates avalanches. Just great marketers snowboard them better. Um I'm a big believer in looking at trends. What's going on in the marketplace? What are some 
business trends? What are some marketplace trends? What are societal trends? Um, what are uh, generational trends? Um, and then, and then understanding where we in this limited world of sponsorship or events, where do we fit into the big picture? Because you're going to have a miserable experience if every time you paddle against the stream, <laughs> it's a lot easier to, to ride the current. Um, and so we try to look at what's going on in society, in the marketplace, and then figure out ways and things that are going to resonate with, uh, with consumers. The last question is, the last piece of it, though, is I don't know how to replicate. Mm. Um, I am an instinctive marketer. You know, years ago, there was a Paul Newman starred in a, in a, a first in a, in a movie called The Cincinnati Kid about, or he start, started one, I'm sorry, called The Hustler about a pool hustler. And later he started in the sequel called The Color of Money. And Tom Cruise was in it. And there's a scene where Paul Newman and Tom Cruise and the, the woman lead in it, walk into this bar, this pool hall. And, and Paul Newman says, do you smell it? And Cruise says, smoke? And the girl says, money. I've just always been able to smell what I think is the right idea for people. I don't know how I do it. I, I, I can't, I just instinctively gravitate towards big ideas. It's just something, it's a gift. You know, I'm a big believer that your gifts are God given, but what you do with your gifts are up to you. I find that so many people in life suffer with a lack of success because A, they don't understand their gifts B, they don't work on their gifts, and C, they don't try to make a life and a livelihood out of their gifts. Mm. I knew early on what my gifts were, and and I've had a, a great career by doing what I do best. Now, look, I suck at details. I'm terrible at details. In fact, when I make it up in my mind, I don't even need to see it happen. Once I've seen it in my mind, and I've sold it to somebody, I'm ready to ride over the next hill and go create something else. Fortunately, I have great people that are great at details. You know, I have a, I have a great woman, Brittany Schiller, who works with me, and I have another woman that worked with me before that's now come back, Kayleen Middleton, and both of them will say, Rick, they said yes, now get out of the room before you screw it up. <laughs> and trust me, there's a lot of truth to that because I'm the architect. I've built the building. I've designed the building. Don't ask me to build the building. Don't ask me to do the plumbing. I don't know anything about plumbing. Don't want to know anything about plumbing. I want to go design the next one. And so that's been the key to my, my success is knowing what I'm good at and knowing what I'm really bad at mm. and only doing what I'm good at and staying the hell away from things I'm bad at. <laughs> I love that. I, 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 I really, really love that. And I, I love it because I just connect so much with being able to see things and architect it in your mind and then doing it, letting it be done by others. And I always have the, you know, at the beginning, you know, you're always the one you're doing most of it. You're, you're doing the details because you have to get something off the ground. But yeah, at a certain point, right, 
letting other people go do it because they can do it better because your time is better spent building and architecting the next set of buildings, communities, and whatever that might be that you need to go create. So um, Rick, thanks, thanks for just sharing such, I think, professional wisdom, how you've been able to, I think, you know, you said you can't you know, replicate things, but you, I think you have some frameworks and belief sets that have enabled you to find niches, operate within them successfully, and kind of sniff out the big ideas, as you said, which has served you well throughout your whole career. Yeah, you know, I just started playing and coaching team sports, and I realized that the agencies are just other teams and 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 do what you do best. Um, you know, it's funny. If you look at football coaches, they hire assistants to do all the coaching, and they do all the other stuff. Basketball coaches, and I was a basketball coach, hire assistants to do all the other stuff so they can coach their teams. Sure. I'm really – I'm really a basketball coach. I, I want hands-on. I want to do some stuff, but I can't play. I got to get other people to play. I can say, here's how we're going to attack this. Here's what we're going to do. But then you go figure it out. And great players know what we're trying to accomplish and they'll figure it out. They'll, and they'll figure it out the way that works for them because that's the best way. And I think in agencies the same way. You, you give them a framework. Like you said, you give them some principles. You give them some direction but you let them go figure out how to do it the yeah. way they want to do it. Absolutely. It's amazing. No, I, I kind of agree more. I mean, everything you're saying, it's it's neat for someone, Rick, I see so much of myself in you. I probably told you that before. And just to kind of hear you talk more concretely about your professional uh, way in which you've operated, I think is, is really uh, special and, you know, inspiring. Uh, it can be done. What, one more question. And you're pretty, I think, philosophical kind of, care and care about, I think, life beyond work. I, for you, Rick, for someone who I think gone to at times in life where maybe there's been questions, um, how have you managed to navigate the, the personal side of it all? Like, and keep, you know, a healthy, happy, kind of personal side to your life as you've been able to dream and do and build an architect uh, as you have, you know, throughout the majority of your career. What, what's been the uh, secret to your kind of personal side, not secret, but the way in which you've been able to keep things consistent and meaningful? Well, I'm a list maker. And I'm a list maker, not only of business, but of life. You know, I, I keep lists and more lists. I, I have identified every trip I want to take now through the year 2035. I've written it down. Where I'm going to go and what months I'm going to go. I cook. I'm the cook in our family. Charlotte's a good cook, but she doesn't like to cook. I love to cook. I make the grocery list. I, I write down every day the meals I'm going to have. Um, I write down the time I'm going to spend with her. I write down the time I'm going to spend with my children and my grandchildren, what I'm going to do. I think the key word for me is intentional. I am very intentional about life. Nothing is by, you know, happenstance. It's all kind of designed to make sure that I can squeeze as much out of life, you know, as I, as I possibly can. Um, I'm fortunate that I've, I love my work. I mean, it's how I paint. It's my hobby. Somebody said to me, when are you going to retire? I'm never going to retire. I mean, why would you, re you retire to do what you love to do? I get to do what I love to do literally every day. Um, and so I think, you know, navigating life, you, you got to have a plan for life, just like you have to have a plan for business. And you got to know 
What are the things that are important to you? Um, and, and, you know, part of it is relationships. How do you add value to people? How do you add value to your spouse, to your children, to your grandchildren, people that work with you to, you know, friends? I think you, you, you look, I'm, I'm just, a, like I said, I'm a, I'm a planner and a squeezer. And I probably get more out of life than a lot of people because I'm not a sit around, what should we do today kind of guy. I, I've, I know what I want to do today. I've planned it. Now, you got to leave a little room for some spontaneity uh, because, you know, sometimes things change. There's the old Yiddish expression, man plans and God laughs. Um, this pandemic, oh, I didn't see that coming. So much for Rick's to-do list. So much for Rick's trips in 2020. They all got canceled. And yet, I was able to pivot and, and get a lot of stuff done and, and enjoy the time uh, in the pandemic because I prepared for it um, and was was prepared to, you know, to do it. I did it on a day-by-day basis. I didn't look two days ahead because the world was changing so rapidly. But I knew on Tuesday what I was going to do on Wednesday uh, in my professional life and in my personal life. Um, and so I, I, I would encourage people to be intentional. Whatever you do, be very intentional about it. And I find that if you write it down, it's kind of like a contract. You write it down, it's on paper. I like taking my pen and marking that sucker off. Um, feels and good. So I gotta, it feels good to do that. And so I, I, I have a long to-do list every single day. But you go, you go to bed most nights with a, you know, tired body and you can sleep well though. Cause you know, you gave, you know, you squeezed every yeah. ounce yeah. of the day. Absolutely. Well, Rick, this is, this is a treat, uh, a treat as always, but so beautiful to be able to record something with you. Excited to share this, uh, live, uh, where, where Rick, if, if someone wanted to reach out or connect, comment, uh, where, where'd be the best place to find you? Well, I mean, you can find me at my email, rick at fishbaitsolutions.com. I'm on LinkedIn, and I return all the LinkedIn messages there, so you can find me there. Or if you're desperate to talk to me, my cell phone is 843-412-5605. You can call it. Let's see if we have any lucky callers. Okay. Permission to call. Well, Rick, thank you. Thanks for making yourself such a... Um, you know, light in my life. And so many, so I'm sure so many others. And uh, thanks for being willing to record. This was so fun and learned so much. Brian, thanks for having me. All right. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, I hope you leave a review on the platform of your choice and share it with a friend who you think would find it valuable. If you'd like to receive our written newsletter and thought leadership, head on over to bwmissions.com backslash newsletter and subscribe. See you on the next show.